Alright, we have finished the history books in the New Testament. In fact, for that matter, in the whole Bible. <laughs> and we're in this section called letters. What's the other name for them? Epistles, Epistles yes. Um, and the first one we're going to do, of course, the first one on the list is Romans. Anybody know who arranged the order of these books? Yolanda? Yeah, it was Martin Luther when he translated the, the Bible into German. He, he arranged the order of the books. Um, and with Paul's epistles, he put them not in chronological order, but in the order that he thought talked the most about the Gospel. So he put the book of Romans first, pretty obvious why, and then as they went through and talked less and less about the Gospel, they got later in, the, in his list. <laughs> it was just his way of organizing it. So it's not the first epistle that Paul wrote. The first epistle Paul wrote is First Thessalonians down here. Possibly Galatians. No one knows exactly when, when he wrote Galatians. Um, but Romans was definitely... Um, well, he'd already finished First and Second Corinthians by the time he wrote Romans. So, I mean, it's definitely not first. And it's definitely not the easiest. <laughs> but it is rich. It is so rich. It just um, the, the message of this book is just fantastic. Um, let's start with a map. This is the only time we're going to do a map today. <laughs> Anyone know where Paul was when he wrote the book of Romans. Well, he was not in Rome because he said. Right. He had never been to Rome. I'll give you a hint. It was on his third journey. That's why we got this map on there. Under, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the reason the reason she says it has to be either Ephesus or Corinth is because when he was in Ephesus, it said that he had planned to go to Rome after, after he left Ephesus. But it was in Corinth, in fact. Um, he, he sent it by means of a lady who was a member of the church at Sincrea, which you can see is just a neighboring it's support city for Corinth. And it's very He doesn't specifically say Corinth in the book, but it, there's, there's way too, too much evidence that it was at Corinth. In Acts chapter 20, he's, Paul spent three months in Corinth on his third journey. And it was no doubt during that time that he wrote the letter, sent it with Phoebe. Uh, who was going to Rome for? I don't know why. Uh, but, you know, I guess she had business. Um, so that's the map. Of course, he didn't go direct from there. Um, he went back through Philippi, all the way back to over here off the map, uh, Jerusalem, where he got arrested. And then we have the next map after this, which is his journey to Rome, which we did last week. But by the time he got to Rome, they already knew him because of this letter. Um, this, I really like this outline. Um, some of these outlines I don't like so much, but uh, I, this one's very good. In fact, I'm going to use it as we go through our chapters this morning. We've got the first 15 verses of introduction, then just two verses that have the theme. The very famous verses. We'll look at those a little bit later. Then we have a section called The Unrighteousness of All Mankind. All have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. Then we have, the big words, righteousness imputed, justification. 
Imputed means God is proclaiming something about us that's not true based upon our behavior. We are made justified. Another word for that is righteous. Um, in the Greek language, the word for justified and the word for righteous come from the very same root word. And it's unfortunate that we don't have the equivalent in English. Um, instead of justification, we could say righteousification. <laughs> and then you would get the, 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 the comparison between that and the word righteous. Um, or instead of, instead of righteous, we could say just. We could have justification and just. But generally when we think of just, we don't get the same concept as we think of with righteous. So most translators in English have used two totally different words, justification and righteousness, even though if you're reading in the Greek, you'd see that it's the very same word. One's the verb, one's the noun. So the, this section talks about how God makes us righteous, how He justifies us. Then the section after that is righteousness imparted sanctification. Again, more big words. What does sanctification mean? Set aside. Set apart. Set apart as holy. Uh, and so that's the part about first God declares us to be righteous, then He makes us righteous in our behavior. Then the, the last section in the doctrinal part of the book is God's righteousness vindicated the problem of Israel's rejection. And, and that was a bigger problem for those people back then than I think it is for, for you and me today. And uh, So we may not spend as much time on that section. We're going through chapter 10 today. This section goes through chapter 11. The rest of the book is then the practical part. And this is a very typical division of, of a lot of Paul's epistles. You have doctrinal first and then practical second. Um, Ephesians works that way. Colossians works that way. Um, now... I, uh, 1 Corinthians doesn't work that way. We, I just finished preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. It, it's not split like that. But, but Romans is another one that's split. You know, not half and half, but first doctrinal, then, then um, practical. Now, I've got some thoughts I want to talk about before we actually get into Romans. Um, some points. Uh, this was Paul's introduction to the church at Rome. And it's very similar to a modern request for support letter. You know, a preacher's getting ready to go uh, preach overseas and, and he, he sends a letter and says, I'm going to be in your area. I'd like to talk with you when I'm there. Here's what I'm hoping to do. But Paul used it for much more than that. It, it, he was introducing himself to the church at Rome so that by the time he got there, they already knew who he was, knew what his plans were. He was going to go to Spain. He wanted their help to, to, to get on that way. And... Um, don't, we don't know whether he ever got to Spain. There's nothing in the Scriptures about that. We just know he really wanted to. Um, but that would be up to God. But Paul used it to tackle the biggest problem in the church at that time. The problem between Jews and Gentiles. Um, there were many Jewish Christians who considered the Gentiles at best to be second-class Christians and at worst not even to be saved because they hadn't been circumcised. Um, Paul dealt with this problem very different than what you and I would think of doing. Most Christians today would say, hey, it's very easy. 
The law of Moses is not in effect anymore. So, hey, take it easy on these Gentiles. And unfortunately, and, and this pains me, unfortunately, a lot of Christians approach the book of Romans thinking that's what it's about. And, and they force the book to fit into a mold that it is not at all about. I'm, one of my nephews is, is a preacher and he, I get his letter of uh, his report and he mentioned that uh, he, was, he was studying the books of the New Testament to talk about the law of Moses being done away with. And he mentioned Romans as one of them. And I will just tell you, the book of Romans is not about that at all. It, it, it is not at all about that. If you want one about the law of Moses being done away with, go to the book of Hebrews. That, that does a very good job of that. But not the book of Romans. And, and when you put the colored glasses on where you're reading the book of Romans like, oh, this is all about the law being done away with, you will not understand it. And unfortunately, that, that was my concern for my nephew. I wrote him about it, but I mean, we don't live anywhere near, so an email wasn't enough. Here's my take on it, and this is not mine uniquely. I think an awful lot of people understand this is what the book's about. The gospel is not like anything humans would ever imagine. Every other religion in the whole world has a, a certain order to it. If you want to be right with God, step one, obey His commands. Then, once you obey His commands, God will accept you. The Gospel turns this thing on its head. Absolutely turns it on its head. Um, the Gospel teaches that God declares you as righteous on the basis of your faith, not of your obedience. After He's declared you to be righteous, He then makes you into what He has declared you to be, which is a righteous person. It's, it's entirely backwards. I mean, all the other religions say, first get your life cleaned up, get righteous, and then God will accept you. And the Gospel says, God will accept you on the basis of your faith, and then He will make you righteous. And because this is the exact opposite of how any of us have been used to thinking, everybody in the whole world is born with this first view. Up here. Everyone, everyone's born that way. That's just, it's built into us. And God turns this thing on its head. The very idea, and, and, and the Jews were, were most upset about this because they felt like they had been doing an awful lot of things to get themselves right with God and these Gentiles come along and God just declares them to be righteous? That's not fair. <laughs> Paul talks somewhat in the book about, hey, if you want fair, here's what's fair. <laughs> That's a big problem. Now this last point is very important. What Paul means by faith is not mere mental agreement. James talked about how you know the demons believe and tremble. That's not the kind of faith Paul is talking about. Paul... Paul is talking about an attitude of trust in God that will result in works of obedience. Even though our salvation is not based on those works, it's based on a faith that will do the works. So, understand as we go through this, when Paul talks about faith, he's not just saying, 
oh yeah, I believe, you know, free, free, um, free salvation, you know, easy salvation. It's not. He's talking about faith like Abraham had. Faith like David had. But as soon as I named those two guys, you realize neither one of them was perfect. They had some big problems with their works. But they had the kind of faith that God could reward. <clears throat> yeah. the, the church at Rome would have had Jews and uh, Gentiles. Right, they had both Jews and Gentiles in it. Yeah, that, that was why it, it, it was issue, yeah. right, very much of an issue. Uh, the Jewish population in Rome was a very large population. Now, at one point, Claudius kicked all the Jews out. You remember when Paul came to Corinth, the um, Aquila and Priscilla were there. But, but they went back. In fact, by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, they were back in Rome. Because they're some of the ones he greets at the end of the book. Um, so we know there were Jews there, um, and, and there were also Gentiles. Uh, and that's why this is such a, a very pertinent topic for the Roman church. And you have to understand that Paul's reputation among Jewish Christians was not very good. I mean, they were slandering his name everywhere they went. And so here he's never been to Rome. They've never met him. They've heard, they've heard lies about him. That, that, that he was things he was not teaching. So he's very careful laying out the whole doctrine. This is what I teach. And, and, and he's trying to accomplish two things. First of all, he's trying to put to rest the lies. And secondly, he's trying to convert some of these people that need to understand what the Gospel is. Because there were, there were Jews from the Pharisaic party who just did not get the Gospel. Alright, other questions? Alright. So this, this is the section of the outline we're going to do today, except we're not going to do chapter 11. But we're doing the first six points on the outline. And I'll pop this up every so often as, as we go along through. Um, so we start with um, chapter 1 talks about the power of the Gospel and the sinfulness uh, of the Gentiles. And I want to look at verse 15. This is in his introduction. So for my part, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's, that's why he's writing the book. So that it's a letter to them, so that um, they'll know who he is when he gets there. So that was the introduction. Then we go to the second part, which is just two verses long. We got kids. Uh, Christine is here, um, and uh, what's oh, and uh, uh, Alec is here. Anthony's here. <laughs> Alright, let's read those two verses. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's the theme of the book. It's the Gospel. Um, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's going to deal a lot with the Jew-Greek issue as, as we go along here. Now, beginning in verse 18 and going on almost to the end of chapter 3, Paul wants to establish the fact that 
All men are unrighteous. Um, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now here he's talking about what we would call natural revelation. Every human being has a certain amount of knowledge of, of God. Just, just the fact that he's born and can, just can look around. He has evidence of God. And so in verse 21 he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now in this section, he's talking about the Gentiles. And he ends up just showing how bad the Gentiles had become because they had rejected the knowledge of God. And verse, verse 21 has a word that's very important. They wouldn't give thanks. Isn't that interesting? Of all the, of all the things you could accuse these pagan Gentiles of, who would have thought to pick they wouldn't give thanks? But that's at the fundamental, that's at the very foundational level of any rebellion against God. Because if you give thanks, you're recognizing your obligation to Him. And if you're obligated to Him, there's some other things that He has to say to you. <laughs> and that brings us, you know, brings people to a big problem. Alright, so into chapter 2 then, continuing with sinfulness, but He switches topics. He doesn't say... At the beginning of the chapter, he doesn't say he's talking about Jews or talking to Jews. By the end of the chapter, he de- he says that some people suggest, well, as a beginning, maybe he's talking about both Jews and Gentiles who are um, uh, uh, more moral than these people that were doing the homosexuality and all the terrible, vile things in, in chapter one. Now, I don't know; it's not a big deal because there's no question they were all lost, and that's just the point that Paul's trying to make. Verse one: Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. You can kind of divide all humanity into two classes. You've got the, the wicked class, and you've got the rest of people who judge the wicked. Paul says they're both lost. Because they're both really doing sins. In verse 10, now here he's talking about the Jew versus the, the Greek. And in verse 10, he says, well, for but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Of course, this is a major theme of the book. God's not partial. He's got one plan for both Jew and Gentile. And, and he, he comes back to this a lot. Uh, and then jumping down to verse 23, he's, he's obviously talking out of the Jew directly. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. The, the, the purpose of the Jewish nation, the purpose of Israel, was to be a light to the world. To shine out the glory of God all around. But they failed in that. Because of their sins. And so, the world around them, instead of glorifying God, is saying, wow, this is you have a great God. The, the world around them said, "Ha, huh, you know, some God if He's got people like you." Which you can recognize this is kind of an application for us today too, because we're now in the position of Israel. We're supposed to be shining the light of God's glory to the world around us. 
All right, chapter 3 continues for the first half on the same subject of all are lost. But in, at the beginning, he's, he's asking, well, what advantage has the Jew? Because the Jew didn't like chapter 2. I mean, why have you told us we're lost? And so at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? They thought the advantage was they had an inside track to get to heaven. And Paul says, well, they've got advantages, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, Paul never does say it was second or third. <laughs> this is the only one he said. But he implies there's more, in other words. But the most important is, they've got the law of God. But that doesn't mean that they have a ticket to heaven. So he talks, I'm, I'm going to skip over this, but he talks some about people that, were, that had unbelief and all. <clears throat> Down to verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Who's the we? Jews. Paul was a Jew. He's including himself in that. Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all what? Under sin. Under sin. Yeah. And he closes this section in verse 20. And again, whoever divided these chapters up didn't follow this outline. <laughs> verse 20 is the end of this major section. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Jews thought that the law gave them this inside track to heaven. We've got the law. We're circumcised. We're keeping the law of Moses. We're, you know, the Gentiles are out. We're in. Paul says, no, the law doesn't work that way. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, at this point, I've got to throw something in. Um, to avoid a misunderstanding that again, as I said at the beginning of this lesson, a lot of brethren have this misunderstanding that the book of Romans is trying to tell us the law of Moses has been done away with. And that's not its topic at all. It's, it, it, there's nothing in the book about that. It's that they misunderstood the purpose of the law of Moses. And that's what he's saying. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's not that the works of the law are bad. It's just that they're, they're, they were never given to justify someone. In, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 21, there's a very important principle that we have to keep in mind. Um, Galatians 3, 21. Maybe I should have put this on the board, but I don't, I don't have it. So, um, He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. What Paul is saying is, there is no law at all that can impart life. Law does not work that way. It's not that, and again, a lot of brethren have this idea that well, the law of Moses was kind of an inferior law. They couldn't keep that. Now we've got this new law. It's called the law of Christ. We can keep it. And, and they think that we're saved now by the law of Christ or we weren't saved by the law of Moses. If they're using the term law in the same sense in both those phrases, they are wrong. The law of Christ is not a new way of being saved by law. Again, I'm not saying we don't have a law. We very differently have a law. But we're not saved by it. And that's the point Paul's making. The law of Moses was good. Who was the author of the law of Moses? God. 
You could not get a better law than a law from God. What Paul is saying is, you cannot have a law that saves people. It has to be on a different basis. And, and so, at the, back to Romans, at the end of this section now, um, we just finished, all mankind is unrighteous. Everyone needs salvation because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And if they're not going to be justified by the works of the law, what's left? The Gentile works? <laughs> we know what kind of works they were doing. We're in a big trouble. So now we're going to look at how God imputes righteousness to us how he makes us righteous or justified in this section from the rest of chapter 3 through all through chapter 5. Um, so in, um, in verse 21, starting, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this method that God has come up with to make us righteous is one that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction. The reason there's no distinction is because they're both in the same boat. They're both lost. Even though the, the Jew thought he was a long way above the, the Gentile, but he was still just as lost. Down to verse 27 then. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Let me point out, Paul's using the word law here in a different sense. What he means here is a principle. He does not mean a law like you can be justified by keeping this law. In other words, by what kind of principle... Will, what kind of principle can God use to save us that will exclude boasting? This is a very important point. Um, God will not have us come to Him in a way that we can brag, look what I've done. Well, what's that famous parable that Jesus told about that? The temple. Yeah. The Pharisee and the tax collector went up to the temple. That's exactly what it's about. <clears throat> God is not going to give us a system or a law, as He puts it here, a principle of justification, a principle of becoming righteous that will allow us to brag. And so Paul says, and that's one of the, that's one of the primary reasons that we're not saved by law keeping. Any kind of law keeping. We're not saved by that. Because that... There's no way you can come up with a principle of salvation by law-keeping that will exclude boasting. And God is absolutely not going to have us boast. Pride, pride is the beginning of all sin. So in verse 28, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And if you have the numeric standard, you'll see that the margin says, or from works of law. It applies to any law. We, we are justified apart from works of any kind of law. It's by faith. Again, keep in mind what I said at the introduction. We're talking about a faith that will result in works. But the salvation is given not on the basis of the works, but on the basis of the faith. 
Alright, I want to go on to chapter 4. This is still in this same section of how we become justified. But now he's going to look at the example of Abraham. A great example when you're writing to Jews. <laughs> what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And that's the big problem. Instead of boasting in God, when we think we're saved by works, we boast in ourselves. And the Jew did. I mean, the Jews boasted about things you would think you wouldn't boast about. They, they boasted about being circumcised. Well, how much work did any of them do to get circumcised? They were only eight days old at the time. But that's the way humans are. It, if, it, if it's on the basis of something that you do, that's, it's going to result in boasting. So he, he goes back to one of the strangest verses in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is a story of what people did. And yet you have this one verse, and, and I'm telling you, I could have read the book of Genesis ten times over and never noticed this verse, but Paul picks it out. In Genesis chapter 15, God was telling Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have innumerable descendants. He had no children at all. And, and <laughs> How are you going to do that, God? I, I'm going to do it. And Moses puts this verse in. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you read that, and when since Paul points the finger to it, you think, whoa, that just came kind of out of nowhere. And Paul makes a major point about it. There was no works involved. Now, I can find you plenty of places in, in Abraham's life where he did works. You know, of course, the most famous one is what? Sacrificing Isaac. Yeah. But this was long before that. Isaac wasn't even born yet. Um, all Abraham did was believe. But God counted him as righteous. He wasn't righteous. We can find earlier on he lied about his wife. I mean, he'd done sins. Far more, of course, than what are recorded. Um, but God counted his faith as righteous. Again, it's a faith that results in works. Abraham did lots of works. But the verse says God counted his faith as righteous. And that's the point Paul's making. So in verse 4 he says, Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But Abraham couldn't come before God and say, God, pay up! And God's going to say, well, what did you do? Well, I didn't do anything. I just believed you. <laughs> but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now that's, that's where we get that. In the outline it says, righteousness imputed. Justification. That, that's um, credited or imputed. It's the same idea. Now, he gives another example. Another one of the great... If you're a Jew, you know you get the name of David. That, wow, that's great. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works... And then he quotes from, what is it, Psalm 31? I, I forget, 32, yeah. Quote, quotes from this psalm of penitence. David was grieved about his sins. He wants to be forgiven. And he quotes these first two verses from the psalm. And you know what's missing from these two verses? The word righteousness. 
<laughs> he says, you know, David speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness. Then he quotes two verses that never have the word in it. What word do they use instead? Um, well, no, that's not the word. I mean, that's a good word. It means you know how wonderful you know how wonderful it is, but that's not the word that is in a, instead of righteousness. Forgiveness, yes, and that helps us understand what righteousness is. Righteousness means we're in a right standing with God. We can't be in a right standing with God if we have what in between us? Sin. We have to have forgiveness, and that comes from God. And so David recognized that. And of course, what did David do to gain this forgiveness from God? There's nothing you can do. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. You remember when, when Nathan came to him? All right. Um, verse 10. Um, now we're back to Abraham. We've left David behind. So back to Abraham. How then was it credited? We're talking about righteousness being credited. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And then he answers the question. Well, it was while he was uncircumcised. In the history, Genesis 15 comes before... Uh, what is it? Genesis 18 or 19? 18 or 19. I forget which it is. I think it's 18 when, when he got circumcised. So, this was given for the Jews. I mean, Paul's saying, you Jews, your ancestor Abraham was counted righteous before God while he was uncircumcised. And of course, they're saying, hey, you Gentiles, you can't be righteous before God if you're uncircumcised. Abraham was. <laughs> Alright, so verse 14 then. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So he's saying the law, the purpose of the law was not to bring about salvation. It, it, it in fact brought about wrath. It, it showed God's righteous wrath against sin. But it didn't tell people how to solve the problem. Um, so in verse 16, this is another very important principle Paul's coming up with. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What is grace? Undeserved favor, yes. All of us stand righteous before God, not on the basis of, of anything we can come to God and say, hey God, pay up, you know, I, I did this. I know it's not very big, but that's what you said to do for me to get saved, and I've done it, so now I... We stand before God on the basis of His grace. Undeserved favor. And the only method of salvation that will work with that is a method that's not based on law. On, on, on law-keeping, on doing works of law. It's, it's on faith. And God did that because God wants to make sure that all of us understand that this is entirely from God, not from us. We, we are way, way too prone to boast. Just like that Pharisee. And it was the tax collector who understood, God be merciful to me a sinner. Mercy is grace. 
Alright, now, so then he quotes in verse 22, again he quotes from Genesis 15. It was credited to him as righteous. Verse 23, now, not for his sake only was it written, but it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So now in chapter 5, we see some results of justification. In, in, um, in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. You see here, when he talks about this faith, he's not talking about something that doesn't do anything. It's going through a lot of suffering. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character of hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now in the next section, he's going to have a lot more to say about what the Holy Spirit does for us who have been justified. But here he's giving us this a preview that um, we're not disappointed in our hope because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 8-10, through 10, we have some very famous verses about how um, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. This is to try to, comp- to, try to counteract a- a- an attitude a lot of Christians have where they think that God forgave them when they were baptized, which He did, but now it's all up to me. You know, God, God wiped everything away back then, but now, um, I, you know, I'm just going to have to buckle down and, and, and work hard, and I hope I make it. I don't know if I can or not, but I hope so. Paul's saying, you, you don't understand. It's by grace from beginning to end. When, if Christ died for you when you were a terrible sinner, you think He's going to let you go now? After He's done all that? Now that you're trying? Now that you've got the faith and you're showing? Of course, He's not going to let you go. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, in verses 12 through the end of the chapter, he compares Adam and Christ. In Adam, what came? Sin and death. But in Christ, righteousness and life. I don't have time to spend more on that, so I'll just leave it there. Alright, now we're into the next section, righteousness imparted sanctification. In other words, once you're justified, once you're saved, how do you become what God has already declared you to be? Again, it's backwards. Why would He declare me to be righteous if I'm not? It's by grace. But He's not going to leave me there. He wants me to become what He's declared me to be. He wants me to be set apart, sanctified, holy. And, and so that's what this starting in, verse, in chapter 6 is about. So, He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In, the, in this book of Romans, a number of times Paul raises these questions. You know, like Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, he has this imagined opponent 
Now we saw him doing that in First Corinthians that I preached about a while back. That those questions were coming from some real guys in Corinth. But Paul, Paul's talking with enough people about this, enough Judaizing teachers to know what they say. And so they're trying to dis, discount his gospel. They're saying, well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, you know, it, it, if, if we're saved just by grace through faith, then if we sin more, that's more grace. And, and basically they're trying to laugh him out, 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 of, out of court. If you believe if you believe that, look at the look at the the conclusion, the logical conclusion we can deduce from your doctrine. Um, well, let me suggest: if we are teaching a gospel that does not cause some people to ask these same questions, we're not teaching what Paul taught. So you think about that. If if what you're if the way you're teaching people to be saved doesn't cause them to raise questions like this, you need to change what you're teaching so that it does. Because Paul, when Paul taught, it raised these kind of questions. And Paul's answer is, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? When we became Christians, it was by faith, but it was a death to sin. And and, and he compares how we were baptized into His death. We went down in the water just like Jesus was buried. We're raised up like He was raised up and we're in His life. If we're in His life, how can we keep walking like we, like we did back before we died? And, and so this again is talking about how we become sanctified. Um, we're, now, we're now walking in Christ. We, we, we hated that life that we left. We weren't, we weren't getting any good out of it. We, we wanted something different. God gave it to us as a gift. And Paul is saying, well, you surely can't go back now to what, what you turned your back on at that point. Um, in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. There's no question that there is work that we have to do on our part. That this whole matter of salvation is a partnership between us and God, but He's the one who's, who does the heavy lifting. We're, what we're doing is simply by faith. Um, verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. This is so important. When we have the view that Again, too many people have that our standing with God is based upon our works. In other words, our law keeping. And we have that view. We are under something that is going to crush us. On some days, I'm great. You know, I'm in favor with God. On other days, I'm a big jerk. I am lost. That's what, that's what this is going to do to us. It's going to crush the life out of us. The, 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 when, but when we're under grace, when I understand that I'm a sinner and God has forgiven me, and you're a sinner and God has forgiven you, I can handle these times when I mess up. It's not that I want to do this or that I treat it casually, but it does not crush me because I'm not under law. My standing with God is based on my faith in Him. And again, I show that faith by what I do. But sometimes not as well as other times. 
but I'm still righteous because of my faith. Because of God's grace, but on the basis of faith. Um, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Another question coming from these opponents. Again, think about it. We need to have people asking these same questions to us or we're not teaching what Paul's teaching. And these Jews, are, are they don't like this. So they say, oh, well, you know, if you're not under law, you can just do whatever you want. Paul says, well, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? If we're going to go back into what we forsook when we put on Christ in faith, we're just going right back into slavery. And Paul says, back before you became a Christian, you were free. You were free as regarded the commands of God. What did you get out of it? What was your wages? What's the wages of sin? <laughs> and that's what he says in um, verse 23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, chapter 6, we are dead to sin but alive to God. Chapter 7, we have died to the law. Um, Paul looks at a married woman. She's, she does not have the right to go get, you know, get a different husband. Well, what if her husband dies? Well, then she can. She's not under the law of her husband anymore. Death separates a covenant, in other words. And, and Paul is saying, when you became a Christian, you died to the law. Now, this is not just the law of Moses. This is dying to law, period. It does not mean I don't care about the law. It does not mean I'm not going to obey the law. It means that I'm no longer a slave under it because I'm a violator of it. We have a very different relationship. And, and so Paul compares that with, with death. Then he has a marvelous passage here. Let me see where I want to start. Um, Verse seven, yeah, verse seven. He he compare he talks about his conflict with the law. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Again, as a hit of his opponents might say, well, yeah, that's what you're saying. You sin the law is sin. No, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Where does that come from in the Old Testament? And what's Exodus twenty about? The Ten Commandments. This is the, the, the tenth commandment, is what it is. So he, he's he's going to the law. He says, "I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet.' But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, producing me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. When that was was probably when Paul was a, a boy, before he had had grown up to the point to understand the law. He was innocent. He was alive." But then the law came and the law sounded like it was good. And the law, Ten Commandments. Tenth one, you shall not covet. You, know, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall covet his house, his sock, you know, all those things. And what started out as good, and, and Paul no doubt heard it, so that's good, I won't do that. What happened? He did it. And he died. Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment to see me and through it, killed me. And so now he talks about this struggle he had. And I think the struggle was as a Jew. Although to an extent we, we see this as kind of a dying echo of, of when we were lost. 
He says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Does that sound familiar? That's the problem when you're under law. All law does is tell you that you're wrong. You're a sinner. And Paul struggles with it. He, 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 with his inner man, he says, boy, I really would love to do this. And then with his flesh, he does the wrong thing. And, and finally, he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And what's the answer? Yeah, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we, all of us who are Christians, were set free from that when we put on Christ by faith. We still find echoes of it. It's, there are a lot of things in the life of a Christian that are already, but not yet. And we already have the victory, but not yet. <laughs> And this is one of them. So that the we from time to time we still see this exact same thing playing out in our lives, and it grieves us. But when this happens, we must remind ourselves that Christ has given us the victory. We are not under law; we are under grace, and by that means, we can become sanctified. Any, any last questions or comments? All right. Appreciate everyone's help this morning.